Are you ready? Yes. Excellent. Thank you for joining us on The Change Artist, where we bring our listeners stories and great advice for leading and following through change from business leaders who are making a difference in their organizations. I'm your host, Alyssa Cox. And here on The Change Artist, our motto is, if change is the only constant in life, let's do it better. And this season, we're focusing specifically on behavior change. So let's jump right in. Diana, how do you define behavior change? I define behavior change, I think of it as the ultimate apology. Most of the time, there is not a need to change behavior unless there is something wrong or something that you want to be better in some way. And I'm reminded, um, I'm really focused a lot on kind of personal relationships at work and how people feel about integrating their personal life uh, with work in my coaching business. And I am constantly reminded of the phrase, apologies are not really apologies unless they are accompanied by a change in behavior. So when you're thinking about a behavior change in the office, there's not necessarily somebody did something wrong that's hurt somebody else's feelings. It could be growing pains. It could be it could be that somebody's feelings were hurt or a team is not working effectively. But basically, behavior change is what backs up good intentions or the desire to correct something. Does that make sense? It does. I love that. And I definitely want to dig in here. But first, I want to introduce you. Now, for those of you who don't know her, Diana Alt is a no BS career growth strategist who helps dedicated high achievers who are ready to combine people skills, analytical skills, and technical skills with their business acumen to do their best work. And she's here to talk to us today about the role of behavior change in driving to the next level in your personal career, in your personal life, as well as with your teams. So I want to dig in a little bit on this ultimate apology. So an apology, as you said, is only required when something's gone wrong. But a lot of times it can be hard to convince others that something went wrong. How do you go about talking to people, particularly when you feel like somebody else has done something wrong? How do you go about having that conversation where a behavior change from somebody on your team or a business partner is an outcome of of that conversation? I think one of the biggest mistakes that people make when there's something that needs to change is making it personal, making the whole conversation personal. So it'll be you against your boss. You think your boss is being a jerk because he won't listen to you or a peer or a client that you're in disagreement with in some way, shape or form. And really one of the two key, there's really two steps or two keys to this that I see. The first is to reframe who or what you are pressing against. So a lot of times people will be on a team and they will be pressing against another person. When in reality, what they need to do is get all the people on the same side of a problem or a mission. So for example, if you have a situation where you just have too darn much work to do because your boss keeps over allocating work to you, very simple example that many, many people go through. Often we want to turn that into my boss is a jerk. He is not paying attention to what's going on, things like that. Instead, if you can go to your boss and say, look, as I understand it, the objectives of my team or our team, our department, our company are A, B, and C. Right now, I cannot achieve all of those things because I am overloaded and demonstrate how. You are now putting both of you on the same side of a problem instead of just 
bitching that you have too much work. Does that make sense at a high level? It does. And it reminds me a lot of conversations that we've had on this show in other episodes around psychological safety, right? And being able to being able to raise concerns, being able to provide feedback, being able to identify mistakes and errors is all about your your belief that people are going to hear what you have to say and keep it focused on the work. Yes. And I think one of the problems that happens a lot is that everyone assumes it's somebody else's job to keep the conversation focused on the work or on the objective instead of taking ownership that you can do that. I don't care if your boss is a 45-year-old executive who should know better, sometimes they have a moment too. And if you're an entry-level person on a team, you can still be the adult in the conversation. You can still be the person that is reframing the conversation to the problem or the mission if necessary. So, And so if you find yourself in one of these situations where you're in an interaction with a leader in the organization and you want to take it on yourself to do that, some of that reframing to get the conversation back on track, particularly from a position of low power in the conversation. How do you go about doing that? So there's a couple of tools that I use. Um, one of my very favorite tools that I teach to people, and it works with every direction on the power chain, if that makes sense. I don't know exactly how else to put it. But there's a feedback framework that I believe was initially popularized by the Center for Creative Leadership, and it's called the SBI, or Situation Behavior Impact Feedback Framework. And so I like to teach people that because it is a way to depersonalize the conversation, and it is a way to express effectively your truth, which sounds kind of loosey-goosey, but really that's what we're trying to do here is express your truth, but also be on the same side of the problem or the mission. Um, so that you can make progress. So situation is basically the context for what is going on. So for example, if you're in a, let's say you're in a staff meeting with your team and your boss and your boss once again points at you and hands you a project in front of others and you don't have any clear way to actually get that done. You can speak to your boss, ideally individually, you know, you don't necessarily want to call it the boss in the staff meeting because you might have a conversation and explain the situation, which is boss, you know, Joe, Mary, Sue. My understanding is that our objective is X. In the staff meeting this week, you assigned me two more projects. I am already overloaded working this amount. So basically you say, this is what happened. You assigned me more stuff. And that covers the behavior too. So my situation is I'm overloaded. And we have these objectives. The behavior is you assigned me another project that is going to detract me from being able to do that. And the impact is I'm either going to have to work copious amounts of overtime or do poor quality work because of this assignment. And then the other thing that isn't talked about a lot, but I've been really adding it into my training is intent. Because a lot of times we forget that other people are also very busy and they have a lot on their minds. We don't know what, what your boss's boss asked them to do. And so you can say, was this your intention? Is your intention that we are not going to deliver high quality work on our objectives? If it is not, then let's talk about how we can you know, right size my workload. If it is, then let's talk about why that's okay. Because sometimes the situation is that 
you know, I, I can be very highly quality oriented. Sometimes I want to do something past good enough. And so you can have a conversation about what is your intention here? Oh, your intention is we're only trying to get to 80% good enough, not hundred percent, a plus, 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 but this whole model allows for you to say what is bothering you, but you not to bring in this assumption of bad intent. Instead, you can have a conversation to move forward. It works in so many different ways, shapes, and forms. I've seen this work between parents and children. I've seen it work between children and parents. I've seen it work with peers in the workplace. Um, I've seen it work up and down and sideways. And I've worked it with clients and even my own executive coach last year. I had a coach last year that was pressing me in a way that was not serving me and was causing me all sorts of stress. And I basically laid this out using effectively this format and we were able to get right back on track with no harm to relationship. I like this idea of confirming intent instead of assuming intent. When we talk about sort of coming in with an open mind, it suggests that we come into these conversations with a blank mind, which I think is not a true reflection of the level of thought and preparedness with which we enter some of these conversations. So this idea of confirming intent, I think is really, is really important for our listeners. You know what I think just occurred to me. So for the first time in quite some time on Labor Day, I went with some friends to the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art here in Kansas City. And uh, I have not very much artistic talent, but I like to look at art. And when I think about feedback, like we are discussing here with the SBI framework, or if you use a different framework with similar intent, is it's like art. We can see that there's paint on a canvas. We can see a lot about what colors the artist used. You can get up close and look at brush strokes, but you can't know what was going through the artist's mind at the time that they created that painting. So if we can go in with the information that we know we have and uh, be honest with ourselves about what we can't know, that's very effective whenever we're trying to have conversations that'll lead to change. How do we then balance that, what we can know, what we can't know personally with sort of talking around and co- sort of crowdsourcing perspectives and knowledge about the person that you're dealing with? How do we think about going about that, that crowdsourcing intelligently and sensitively? Ooh, the crowdsourcing is such an interesting topic. So I am a very direct person. And so I actually think in some cases that crowdsourcing does not serve as well as people want it to serve. You know, we talk a lot about the crowdsourcing of information, especially about leaders, a couple layers, you know, kind of that don't feel accessible to us on a day-to-day basis. We think about that as research. We put all kinds of good names about it. And a lot of times what it actually is, is gossip. So I think we have to be incredibly careful about who we are crowdsourcing with and what our intent is whenever we're trying to get information. If our intent is to find a way to manipulate the person, then we need to sit back and ask, is that really the way that we want to enter into a relationship or further a relationship with this person? Especially if it's not a leader that knows you very well, because people can sniff that stuff. I mean, we can, we can tell ourselves six ways to Sunday that we will, we will manipulate them and they won't realize it. And it's, it's always false because we know when we're being manip- manipulated. Why would we think that other successful adults don't know when they're being manipulated? 
Um, if you are asking questions, though, of people that truly know the person and you are asking them in a way that furthers mission, then I think you're in a good shape. So for me, a lot of times what I like to ask questions about if I am crowdsourcing, working with people is how does this person like to be approached? How do they process information? So it's often not even about the issue that I want to go talk to them about. It's about their communication style. And it's about their temperament in general so that I can approach them and I'm meeting them where they're at. My very first job out of college, I actually went to work in IT consulting. It was, you know, 1999 during the tech boom, right? Two years before the tech bust. And when I was a baby consultant, we were actually evaluated on whether we met our clients according to the communication channels and the approaches that worked best for the client instead of best for us. So from the time I was in my early twenties, I was conditioned that I needed to think about what does the person I'm trying to work with need. So if you're trying to go into the office of a leader that wants very direct and is going to have 10 minutes tops for you, that is a very different thing than if you have a very relational leader that you're going to work with that wants to sit down and discuss things thoroughly. If you walk into the 10 minute uh, conversation leader and you're thinking you're going to have a 45 minute conversation, you're going to be perceived as wasting their time. Similarly, if you walk into the highly relational leader and you only give them five minutes of information, they might not think that you value them or that you've done your due diligence. So that kind of crowdsourcing to learn those things can be incredibly valuable. But crowdsourcing to manipulate opinion and sway opinion is not. That's just gross. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. That's gross. So let's flip the script. We've talked about managing up, talking to your boss, driving different behaviors with people above you in the chain. If you're managing a team... Or if you're managing peers, right, in a non-direct reporting relationship, how do we think about adjusting our message, adjusting our approach so that we can, we can drive the right outcomes without starting to sound dictatorial? Honestly, I don't think it's that different. I think we make it different. Now, especially if you're a manager and you have subordinates on your team that you're having to work with. Sometimes there are gaps in knowledge, you know, domain knowledge, institutional knowledge, et cetera. Some, you know, if you have a brand new college graduate that hasn't figured out how to do adulting yet, the way that you approach them could be a little bit different and you might need to provide them more structure. But really, all of it boils down to meeting them where they're at. Um, my last job that I worked in corporate before I went full time in my business, we had a lot of basically, you know, middle aged white men that were in the C suite. And there were a few in particular that liked a degree of formality and a little bit of deference from the people that were under, you know, kind of underneath them. Well, I'm going to use that information in working with them. But the guy that was the, the CTO, he was a leader in technology before he was in the C-suite. And I'd never worked as a peer to him. I was always a couple clicks below, but I didn't have things change in the way that I approached him because he was in the C-suite if I had to talk to him. Similarly, when I saw people that were peers that got promoted up above me, I didn't change the way that I approached them because I knew the style that they had. I knew what their priorities were, or I would ask them what new priorities that they have. So I think we make some of these things in our head be a lot more different 
Um, but if you go with a framework of, I want to understand what these people are concerned about. I want to understand how it aligns to what I'm concerned about with mission. And I want to respect what they need in communications. It's really the same thing. So you just fill it. It's the Mad Libs are different. You know, the process is the same, but the information that you get about what a 22 year old new hire needs is very different than what your CTO needs. And I guess my next question is, how do we change the way we go about driving behavior change? Because if if behavior change is an apology, a lot of times I'll get an apology for this one thing. But what if the behavior change that I need is a sustainable behavior change? I think it's very important to understand the difference between anecdotes and um, like systemic issues um, or patterns. So one of the very first um, leadership development trainings that I took many years ago, um, gosh, er very early in my career was called Crucial Conversations. And it's still around. I don't know if it's as popular as it used to be, but um, the Crucial Conversations framework specifically talked about um, identifying patterns before you have conversations so that when you walk into a conversation and you tell about a situation as an example, that people can't just cut you off at the knees when it's a pattern. So if, for example, someone said, Diana, you have a tendency to talk over others, which is a real thing that I've worked on because I'm so direct and I've got things to say. If you just say, well, in the staff meeting last Monday, you interrupted Mary whenever she was presenting her project proposal, I'll say, yeah, but that was just Monday. But if you think before you have a conversation about both specifics and patterns, you can come at things from a much more constructive situation or a constructive perspective. Sometimes you really are dealing with an anecdote. A lot of times when you're dealing with an anecdote, especially if it's something negative, someone snapped at you, someone was dropping the ball on a project and that's not normally their mode. Um, for me, when I see anecdotes, a lot of times I'm gonna ask, are you okay? Because so often those things are caused by struggles at home. Someone is sick, my dog just died, You know, my aunt has cancer, whatever those things are that don't necessarily enter into the workplace day to day. And sometimes that people aren't ready to share. But when you're dealing with more of a behavior pattern, then knowing that, yes, I'm going to talk about the staff meeting on Monday, and I'm going to also be able to talk about the fact that you did that to Mary in the last three staff meetings. And also I watched you in another project meeting do it to somebody else. That becomes more powerful. The other thing I would say is coming at these conversations from a position of being willing to help is very important. When you tell somebody that they have a behavior pattern that is less than desirable, you're usually dealing with someone who um, it's an ingrained habit. Habits can take a very long time to formulate or change. And a lot of times people don't realize they don't know how to change a habit or they don't know what habit they should change to. And so if you can provide information to them, even if it's just saying, I'll give you a budget for a few sessions with a communications coach or someone like that, we'll, like we'll give you tools to help you with that. I'll buy you this book off Amazon. I'll mentor you a little bit extra. Um, Mayor, you know, Jody in HR knows how to help you with this. Um, but if you come at it with, I want to help you with this, instead of just saying you have a crappy pattern and now it's on you to fix it, 
that's a much more respectful and constructive way to go about talking to people about systemic behavior. I, I also think that when I've been in a position to give feedback on things like with junior resources, like on like attention to detail, a lot of times what I hear is, okay, I'll try harder. I'm like, you can't just try harder. You actually have to push in a different way, right? Let's talk about the different way you're going to push to attack this problem. I think honestly, um, hard work is overrated. I think innovation comes from constraint. And if people constantly look at, I'm just going to work harder. I had an old boss that said, like, we don't get better by doing the same stupid stuff harder. We get better by figuring out how to do things a different way, to your point, like not gritting your teeth. So um, one of the things people really struggle with is actually being clear on expectations. So saying you have poor attention to detail is not helpful, especially to a very young professional. Saying, this is what I expect. Here are places that I saw details missing. And this is why those details are important. And let's talk about how we can make sure that you can do better. Do you need someone to partner with you on the project? Do you need training? Do you need um, to build extra time into your schedule so you can do a couple of drafts, whatever that is. But we, when we don't set clear expectations, which most people don't set very clear expectations, we cannot expect success. You just can't because you're aiming at a moving target or a non-existent target. Yeah, I think it encourages us or requires us to dig in and set SLAs against things that perhaps we haven't thought about setting SLAs for. These are sort of learned behaviors. These are my expectations. They're very high level. And the only thing you can possibly do at that point is fail, right? Yeah. The only thing you can do is I, mess it up. I want to talk about failing too. So one of the things that I think is really destructive in the corporate setting is that people will do their darndest to overcome a horrible system. So they will work the 60 hours a week whenever they're under-resourced. They will um, just shrug their shoulders whenever a system or a technology tool is not working for them. And really, sunlight is the best disinfectant. So the best way to get things to be fixed or to be looked at for change is oftentimes to let the system fail. Now, you don't want to do that when it's life or death. If you're going to kill somebody, don't let the system fail on purpose. But exposing problems instead of trying to cover up and compensate for problems is also a very underrated thing. Um, and I really got into that whenever I was a scrum master. People were constantly wanting scrum masters to cover up for all of the problems. <laughs> it's like, no, the scrum master's job is to expose the problems to the team and if necessary to leadership so that we can get what we need to solve the problems. It's not to run around spinning plates like the guy at the circus. Fair. Now I know we're coming up to the end of our time together, but before we go, what is your top piece of advice to our listeners for helping shape behavior on our teams and with our business partners? Um, it is, pro well, it's hard. And we talked about it already in this. I would say um, getting on the same side of the mission or the problem. That is the A number one thing, because the minute that you change your perspective to us, against our SLA, us against our client deliverables, us against 
our customer service problem instead of me against you, the whole game changes. Excellent. Well, thank you, Diana. I know I've learned a lot today. I'm sure our listeners have as well. Now, if our listeners want to connect with you directly, how should they go about doing that? Uh, The two best ways are number one, to find me on LinkedIn. And I'm sure you'll put my LinkedIn link in the, in the show notes. The other is to just look for my website, dianaalt.com, um, D-I-A-N-A-A-L-T.com. You can uh, smash the Let's Connect button or fill out the Contact Us form and just let me know how I can help you. And yes, we will absolutely include those links in the show notes. Well, I really appreciate your time and your perspective here. Hopefully our listeners can take your advice and apply it to their own teams. If any of our listeners would like to bring these kinds of conversations to their own organizations, they can visit us at blueswiftconsulting.com to schedule an intro call. Thanks again, Diana. Thank you. 